Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller. It's been another great week, and I'm excited to have you here for another episode of the podcast. It's April 22nd as I'm recording this on Sunday. I skied yesterday on the 21st of April here in New England. We had a great day at Killington and sunny skies, beautiful snow conditions, in fact, and tons of snow still up here. Not so much at my house, luckily, and we're starting to get a little bit warmer, but uh, we're still skiing well into April. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Jay Bowman. Dr. Bowman is an accomplished speaker and author, and many of you are familiar with him. He brings a wide variety of experiences and knowledge to share with us, and I have no doubt that this is going to be a very interesting and informative interview. So I'm excited to get Dr. Bowman here on the line in just a minute. I'm going to be in attendance at the AAO convention here. It's coming up very shortly in about a week and a half. And I'd love to uh, get to meet as many of you as possible. If we run into each other in the hall, come up and say hi and introduce yourself. And I'd love to connect with as many of you guys in person as I can. We're going to get into the interview right away. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors. Whether you are planning your retirement, looking to take on a partner, considering hiring an associate, or you are a recent graduate ready to begin your career, Benson Koppel and Associates can provide you with assistance regarding your next career decision. Every doctor has unique needs when it comes to his or her practice's ownership or employment goals, and Benson Koppel is here to help. Having been involved in hundreds of transactions, their team's extensive experience provides a unique perspective to your individual situation, from locating an orthodontic career opportunity to selling one's practice. If you're seeking a candidate for your orthodontic practice, Benson Koppel's industry-leading orthodontic placement and recruiting services can help locate the best individual. On staff is a highly trained, certified professional recruiter who offers unsurpassed service and dedication to ensure the best candidate is located to continue your orthodontic legacy. Visit BensonKoppel.com to learn more about the firm's many services, access answers to frequently asked questions, download helpful resources, and subscribe to the informative quarterly publication, The Benson Koppel Resource. Whatever your evaluation, transition, or recruiting needs, the experienced team at Benson Koppel & Associates is available to guide you through the process. Visit BensonKoppel.com to put their knowledge and experience to work for you. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Jay Bowman. Dr. Bowman is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics and a member of the Edward Engel Society of Orthodontists. He developed and teaches a straight wire course at the University of Michigan, is an adjunct associate professor at St. Louis University, an assistant clinical professor at Case Western Reserve University, and visiting clinical lecturer at Seton Hall University. Dr. Bowman is a guest editor for seminars in orthodontics, either a contributing editor or on the editorial board for the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dental Facial Orthopedics, the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics, Angle Orthodontist, Seminars in Orthodontics, and a member of the editorial advisor board for Orthodontic Products, Orthodontic Practice U.S., and Ortho Tribune. He has over 130 articles published and has contributed to eight book chapters. Dr. Bowman has given over 130 lectures in over 38 U.S. states and 36 countries on six continents. He speaks on a wide variety of clinical topics and has developed a number of orthodontic product concepts, including the butterfly bracket system and V-slot auxiliaries, the Bowman modification and horseshoe jet, 
the Monkey Hook and Kilroy Spring for impacted teeth, and Aligner Chewies and Retainer Retrievers for Invisalign. Dr. Bowman is someone who I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while now, and I'm excited to have him here with us on the line today. Dr. Bowman, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's always nice if somebody wants to talk about orthodontics, I'm always willing. <laughs> great, great. We got snow here today, April 15th here in New Hampshire. I'm wondering if, did you guys get some snow in the upper Midwest? I saw it in your forecast. Yes, actually, it was more like sleet and uh, some ice on the trees, but we're supposed to get a little bit more snow tomorrow, but hopefully it'll be gone before the end of the week. Yeah, this is this is the winter that never ends, but I did get to go skiing yesterday, so I suppose that's the silver lining. Well, that's excellent. That's very good. I uh, did a little skiing uh, trying to get to a restaurant. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, great. Well, I, I want to spend the first part of our conversation talking about some clinical topics. You've spoken all over the world on some of, I guess, the thorniest questions in our specialty, things like extraction, non-extraction, one- or two-phase treatment. And I guess maybe let's begin with the question, you know, of why we can't seem to answer these kind of controversies. You know, there's some people that clearly have something to sell, but I think that most orthodontists are trying to give their patients the best possible treatment you know, and I think some people would say, hey, we've, I've got a series of successfully treated cases that seems to justify the method that I'm using. There are certainly many different treatments that can provide favorable results. Doesn't mean that all of them are the best treatment. And ultimately, there must be one best treatment for any particular situation. But to find a consensus or find proof for that, it's very difficult. Filtered experience of treating a bunch of people a certain way doesn't mean that that's the right treatment any more than anybody else's. And since no one really is harmed by less than ideal treatments, in effect, uh, no one dies. And we never really quite know what is the optimum treatment for a particular situation. So these controversies just seem to never end, even though there seems to be adequate evidence to end most of them. If we really sat down and were asked, if you really had to make a decision, like say with uh, someone threatening your life, you could probably come up with a decision, enough evidence to support a particular treatment that the majority would also support. So if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the some of the odd or silly treatments that are promoted, at least to some of us, would probably fall by the wayside in those instances. Right, right. You know, it seems like there is certain times where there are different options, like you mentioned. I mean, sometimes it is like, do you want a Toyota or a Honda here? I mean, I think, you know, there are those, I'd say, differences in clinical judgment. But I think trying to pair that with research and what's being done in academic settings, I think that sometimes is a difficult path for a busy private practice orthodontist to manage. As Lyle Johnston has said, any treatment that's been done in the past 100 years of orthodontics has been successful. Successful enough, at least, to keep the lights on in somebody's office because no one, again, is harmed by poor treatments. So since there's really no substantial downside to picking any kind of treatment, they all seem to continue to persist in some form or other or reintroduce with different words in uh, sales pitches. It's a somewhat unfortunate for the patient because they don't really know how to select what is a better treatment for themselves. In fact, they're led astray by folks that really aren't adequately trained to provide any treatment, let alone treating themselves. So it is a problem, primarily for the patient more so than us. I mean, we, we seem to be our own best enemies and fighting and scratching amongst ourselves over uh, what's the best way to retract a canine or to grow a mandible or 
what's the best hunk of plastic that's going to create a better airway. It just seems odd that we've all joined these little cliques and tribes, and then we squabble amongst ourselves, led by many of the companies, the corporations that are advertising all of these little concepts, rather than us getting together and coming up with some common solutions. You know, talking about, I guess, one of the, the kind of the age old big one, the non-extraction versus extraction debates. You know, I, I know I've certainly seen finished cases where I felt like the wrong decision perhaps was made. Do you think some of the more extreme positions on this issue come from kind of this never again sort of mentality, thinking of that one terrible case and, and not wanting to repeat it? Or how do we get so strongly held beliefs in this specialty? Well, there's two two things I would say is, yes, you're correct. Oftentimes we may see some result or they've been promoted by someone who's selling a particular concept or appliance and says, look, uh, I saw this horrible result and it must have been due to the removal of some teeth, where in fact it may have just been poor growth, poor treatment by a particular practitioner, poor results, N equals one. But the other question you ask is more intriguing, and that is how do we make decisions? And um, there's a lot of great information in psychology and neuroscience talking about the fact that we may be presented with facts or the truth, and yet we won't change our most fundamental presuppositions. It's uncomfortable for us to do that. So it's almost like a religion or a cult in the fact that you have been ingrained into one particular concept of treatment and you can't avoid the fallacies within it despite the fact he might be presented with overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Once we start to face up to this, our blind spots, and there's a, there's a book entitled that, until we see our own blind spots, oftentimes we're just stuck. In fact, even after we've, we might, may have realized the blind spots, we still may be stuck in a particular belief system. So that controversy just is never ending. It obviously presented itself originally with Edward Engel, with this concept of non-extraction, although he was found to have extracted teeth, at least in one case in one of his textbooks, followed by Tweed, who extracted to resolve the negative outcomes from a non-extraction at all costs concept. And it's continued on into today with controversies as to whether or not extractions have destroyed faces, temporomandibular joints, stability, vertical dimension, aesthetic smiles. Right. And now we're into airway. We're back to where this whole thing started before the turn of the 20th century to concerns of airway. I'd love for you to talk about that. You know what? Do you think that this hot topic of airway is going to have an effect on this debate? I mean, this sleep disordered breathing, you know, it seems like something we don't really know a lot about, but we have all of a sudden this very intense interest as a specialty. And, and it seems to be framing a lot of the discussion uh, on this topic. Well, if, if we go back to our times in dealing with the uh, question of temporomandibular joint dysfunction and, and its origins and whether or not orthodontics played a role in that, we're kind of in the same thing here with airway. But if we go back again to Edward Angle, his seventh edition has a chapter. He talked about airway. So this is nothing new. The French were treating glossoptopia, which is basically tongue swallowing with functional appliances. That's the origin of that. So I don't think it's that new. It's just the fact that there's a new commercialized venue for folks interested in this topic. And certainly we have a number of people in orthodontics and in dentistry that are putting their toe in the water, providing snore devices for patients. And the concern is, has there been an adequate diagnosis? 
And then concern that goes beyond that is what are, what are the side effects of the devices? You know, we have the school of thought that we're advancing the mandible or that we're expanding the maxilla to solve these issues. And then, of course, in the most severe circumstances, then we have surgery. So I think uh, this isn't going to go away anytime soon. And there's a lot of misinformation that's being disseminated. And of course, the folks that have joined the meme of non-extraction at all costs have brought up the idea that they think that extraction somehow cause the airway issues or poor posture is the cause of failure in airway. And only certain types of devices are able to resolve those issues for patients as they're growing. So there's some very odd things that are being promoted that you can find out on the internet. The one thing that's changed since I got into orthotics is the dissemination of misinformation through the internet is astounding. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I think that people, when they have these tightly held beliefs, they are very reluctant to let them go. I read a quote this weekend that confirmation is in much higher demand than information. And uh, I think that applies sometimes to our segregated thinking uh, in orthodontics. That is very true. It's uh, socially acceptable for us to have this confirmation bias, whereas the truth may not be as socially acceptable or maybe even financially acceptable to us. So we believe these absurdities sometimes because it feels good. It just plain feels good to believe them. And my side bias is a real deal. It's a difficult thing to overcome. There's a disparity between what science tells us and what we tell ourselves. There's a lot of persistent unsupported beliefs that are just perpetuated throughout uh, the internet. And some of them just may be not only demonstrably false, but they could be potentially harmful to patients. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about temporary anchorage devices. I was in residency in 2008 and 2009, and it seems like in retrospect that that was really the peak time. It was like a frenzy for interest in temporary anchorage devices. And now, to me at least, it seems like there's a minority of doctors who are using them and probably using them very well and effectively and have worked out some of the kinks. But then others have mostly abandoned this concept. Do you think that you know, owners of busy practices kind of have to make a decision about what techniques we're going to use on a regular basis. And, and mini screws had to find their place in that, you know, selection among different competing philosophies. Well, I don't think that there's a necessity for the use of mini screws in orthodontics. For me, it was a challenge that came about uh, probably 2004, 2005. The idea of having skeletal anchors to support any type of orthotic mechanism would seem to me to just improve the predictability of what, what we were doing. So I was challenged by three people, Lyle Johnson, Buzz Barrett, and Tony Gianelli. Actually, all at the same time at a, at a meeting, they came up to me independently. They hadn't been speaking together, but they asked me if I was going to get involved in this. And when those, those folks are asking you something, they're really not asking. They're telling you that you're going to get involved. So uh, I got involved very early on for a U.S.-based orthodontist. Yeah, it was a little crazy. Anybody that uh, was in my office that I could convince into using mini screws, I wanted to see where the boundaries were. What could we do with these? So for a number of years, it was if you were breathing and you walked by, you generally were going to get a mini screw in my office and learned an awful lot about what could be done with them. And it was later on that Johnston suggested that we look at what were the best methods. Could we call this down to situations that were the most predictable and simple. And I've continued to simplify that. 
you know, are there a handful of situations or methods that you feel like these are the two or three ones where mini screws are, are a great choice? I certainly think so. Uh, in situations, if you have maximum anchorage, I mean, what more could you ask for than even though they aren't absolute anchorage because mini screws can tip, they are a fabulous method of assisting in preparing or, or creating anchorage. Also, for situations where you may wish to protract or intrude or even distalize in the maxillary arch, there's some very simple modifications of transpalatal arches that can be used with mini screws without a great deal of expense or uh, complication. Another would be in some areas of intrusion, both of incisors and posterior teeth in upper and lower arches, and also some retraction in the lower arch, which would be limited in the scope. So I find them to be exceptionally helpful in trying to get treatment to be more effective and efficient. It's become, I don't want to say a routine thing in my office because that sounds odd, but having placed thousands of screws has made my practice efficient in my, in my own terms. And being able to place that many screws is no proof of me knowing it. I just was able to talk more people into doing it. So that's the, the one thing is I don't feel I'm any greater expert than anybody else. It's just that I've done a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's interesting to hear and that, you know, you've been able to kind of narrow it down. Are you placing the ones for anchorage and for distalization? Those are going mainly in the palate? Yeah, the palate is a much more forgiving location than interradicular sites in the buckle. Although I still do those, the lower arch is always the one that is the least predictable. Although using the buckle shelf like Chris Chang uses is, is certainly some improvement in that in that relationship. But otherwise, yeah, we've uh, made modifications in the use of transpalatal arches for class twos, threes, and also just plain old crowded situations. I actually have an article coming out that built upon the original concepts that were presented in a couple of book chapters in 2006. This article is going to be in seminars in a couple of months, and it's called Uno Dos Trace, One Concept for Three Angle Classes. So I have found that to be exceptionally helpful. It's a very simple concept of just different changes to a transpalatal arch design because the TPA itself is not much for anchorage. But when you add a couple of mini screws inserted in the posterior palate between the upper second bicuspid and first molar, it becomes a very useful tool in just about any type of malocclusion. Another topic that you speak on is aligner therapy. And I think it's probably fair to say that companies like Align Technology have made some real advances, I think, in the staging and sequencing. You know, I feel like I don't have to look at as many details when I'm setting up a case. I can kind of count that some of that's going to be taken care of. Do you think that that kind of improvement on the part of the lab or intellectual property or artificial intelligence or whatever you want to call it, is that decreasing kind of the variability of outcomes between experts and kind of less experienced doctors? I mean, what ideas can orthodontists bring to the table when they're thinking about doing an aligner case that's going to increase their effectiveness? Well, I got involved with Invisalign back when it's introduced in 1999. I saw it and I said, oh my gosh, that's the same concept as Harold D. Kessling's use of tooth positioners in 1945, since we were taught by Pete Kessling at St. Louis University, it seemed like a logical extension of that concept. You knew that you could do that. It was a labor-intensive process of taking impressions, moving teeth, and making retainers. But I, I was intrigued by it. I thought, you know, this, this looks good, but I, I just don't see how this is going to be applicable to a variety of treatments beyond just simple crowding or spacing. And as this has grown, certainly the technology has improved. 
But there are a number of issues with predictability of clear aligners that were the things that forced me to push harder on this. There are a lot of folks that have done a lot more Invisalign than I have, and I look to them as experts and for advice. And certainly some of the, the pieces I've written about Invisalign, I couldn't have done without some other folks that do a lot more Invisalign. But I find it intriguing, and I think that there are unpredictable elements. And I'll just say, for example, maxillary lateral incisors are probably one of the most problematic teeth to move, and yet one of the most frequently cited as uh, patient concerns. So looking for alternatives to improve the predictability of that is one of the things I keep looking for. You have to, first of all, realize what are the limitations? And there are a number of articles that have been published on certain aspects of clear aligner therapy and how predictable they are. So I always go back to what P.R. Begg said to Lyle Johnston late in his career, late in, in Begg's life, looking at his finished cases, and he asked if there was any particular piece of advice that Begg would have for orthodontists. And, and his advice was to overtreat, overtreat, overtreat. And I take that as overcorrect, 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 which has sort of been a bad word within clear aligner companies. You know, we look to see this pretty cartoon at the end of treatment on the screen with all the teeth absolutely straight. Well, I don't allow anyone to look at my final setup on screen because the teeth are out of whack. The midlines are overcorrected, the rotations are overcorrected, the relationship of the molars is overcorrected, etc. Because the only way to get to a finish with a flexible device like that is to go ask the system to go beyond what you would hope to have fixed. So I guess that would be my simplest advice is whatever you're looking to get, ask for more because the system oftentimes is not going to get there. It's not efficient enough. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And talking about aligners, as, as I'm listening to this, kind of brings us a little bit back around to where we started talking about diagnosing cases and kind of where we are as a profession. You know, I think now there are, you mentioned people getting treatment in the mail or at a kiosk in the mall. Does some of this aligner therapy and the mediums in which it's being delivered kind of move us more and more into this post-diagnosis age? You know, will these algorithms determine treatment for a significant percentage of orthodontic patients? Well, it depends on how accepting the the patients, and I use that word instead of customers or consumers because I believe we are treating patients. Those companies are treating customers. The problem is going to be if the patient decides or the customer decides that they're not satisfied with the results that they've been provided. And if those customers look at the results critically enough and say, these teeth aren't as straight as I would have liked, then those companies may have to come up with an alternative method of ensuring that results are being achieved. For us right now, it's not that tough because a lot of patients don't understand what a quality result looks like. And they may not understand that although their teeth might be straight and they return and say, look, my bite doesn't quite fit, the excuses are given, well, you didn't ask us to do that. You asked us to straighten your teeth. Well, that's the difference is that we hope that the majority of us are looking to do both. And making the excuse, well, the patient didn't ask to have their bite fixed seems rather lame in this situation. So I think it's going to come down to the patient's decision whether they're accepting of perhaps a less than ideal result. If they're happy with just the front six teeth being straight, there's any number of ways of doing that. And the economics of that may drive it to going to the mall kiosk or ordering something online. But 
We know that simply taking impressions in home, there was a master's thesis done at St. Louis University that demonstrated that the public can't do it. In fact, the majority of our staff members have had typically a very difficult time getting quality impressions consistently with that type of material. So going to scanners and making the decision whether or not the scans can be done by someone who has no technical training in orthodontics and then they're accepted somewhere along the line by someone we don't know, who's responsible for the final result? Is it the patient since they're the treater? Uh, they aren't licensed to practice. Is it the person who took the scan? They're not licensed to practice. It comes down to, do we need licensure to even do anything in orthotics? That's what this final argument might be. Right. Are we any different than buying contact lenses online? Yeah. I mean, it seems like maybe the marketplace will bifurcate a little bit and you'll have these customers, I guess, as you call them, seeking treatment from, you know, an online option. And then maybe the patients that we're treating in our office, you know, I, I see the snore guards or whatever being sold on the TV commercials. And we, we do a similar appliance in our office for, you know, I don't know, 10 or 50 times the cost of what they can get online. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of precedent for it in the marketplace. Yeah, the patient that treats themselves is, uh, it's unfortunate they have a fool as a patient and a fool as a doctor. You know, I guess that's the way of the world. We buy all kinds of things online to treat ourselves for weight loss or, as you said, snoring, you know, a variety of different things, different methods to treat ourselves. But at some point, folks may not be treated optimally and they're going to have to decide whether or not that's acceptable to them. Tell us a little bit about where we are with these vibration technologies, these appliances that are out there to speed up tooth movement. Honestly, at this point, I think I've read so many conflicting papers and reports, and I, and I have a very little experience myself. I don't really know what's going on with the tooth jigglers at this point, but where do you think that is? Is that a, an important part of what we have to offer patients? Well, let me, let me start by telling you how I got involved. I'm a member of the Angle Society, and our Eastern component, every five years, we present a paper to our group, typically a paper that might be publishable. I don't remember what year this was. This is probably six years ago. I was given a lecture down in Texas, and I had read some little report from a company that was starting up that said that they had a device they were going to introduce that would produce vibration on teeth with the idea that it might stimulate increased tooth movement, rate of tooth movement. So I just simply uh, wrote to the folks and asked them if they would be interested in talking to me because I had an idea for a way to demonstrate whether or not this worked. So I met with the principals of this startup company for lunch, and I told them, you know, I have a sample size of over 800 patients that were treated with molar distalization with a distal jet, which started out instantly enough as, oh, I'll just I'll follow a few of these patients with records and it might be interesting to see what this does. And so once you get to 800 of these in your practice, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is quite a sample, especially since now there have been 15 master's theses that have used samples of these patients because of the record keeping that we did in our office for this. So I thought, you know, I got a great control sample here. This is a treatment that uh, we use a lot in our office for class twos, and we know a lot about it from all this research that we participated in. So if vibration would make a difference in that in the rate of the tooth movement, it might be interesting. And it would be uh, something I could do clinically in my office as a research project. And I thought it would be pretty simple. Well, at the time they were doing, they actually did research. 
They did two studies prior to the introduction of this device in the marketplace. How often is that done in orthodontics? Not very often. And I thought that was pretty reputable that they had done this research. They got FDA approval. And then they contacted me and said, yes, we'd be interested in having you do the study. So at that point, we started with the idea that we would do 10 patients. We'd give them these vibrating devices and see what the effect was and compare to the controls. But the one thing that hit me differently about this is if you're going to go faster in treatment, if you want the tooth movement to go faster, your biomechanics have to change. So what we did was we decided to see the patients every four weeks in a regimented system rather than every six to eight weeks. That was our kind of scheduling in the office. And I said, no, they have to be here every four weeks. They have to bring back their device every four weeks so that we could read the amount of compliance. Did they actually use the device? Just because you gave them one, that doesn't mean they used it. And the question is, does vibration make a difference? Not did they wear it make a difference? And that is a key difference between what I did and some of the other studies. So in my study, we quickly realized that you're going to have to have a different control sample. You can't have one group that used the device every four weeks or was seen every four weeks. And the other group, well, we saw them every six to eight weeks. So we had to get a control sample. So now the thing starts to get complicated. (laughs) And we actually ended up with 60 total patients, 30 in each group. To manage that in a clinical practice is a bit of a trick. And I did not at the time starting this realize that I was going to end up with this. So people say, well, you didn't have a blinded sample. No, it wasn't that easy because I didn't count on needing a control sample until I figured that I did. So the final result for the distalization was there was a difference, but it was not specifically statistically significant at P uh, equals 0.53, if I remember the number correctly. But it trended towards that. So our science is not to find out what is statistically significant, but might something be clinically relevant? Now, in the interim, we also did, I realized, I was at, a, at the Moyer Symposium, that uh, I hadn't even looked at the lower arch. It just hit me. I had a whole sample of patients that had completed all the way through leveling to uh, full-size wire for us in 1925 steel. So I went back through the charts retrospectively. No way I could have affected the outcomes, and looked at how long it took to align the teeth and then level the teeth. And there was no statistically significant difference between patients that had vibration for alignment or not, and no one else has shown that either, not one single study. But once you got to full leveling of the arch, there was a statistically significant difference, in fact, a 30% decreased time to achieve that goal. Now, again, looking at patient cooperation, those that had more compliance in wearing the devices had more dramatic results. Now, I agree. We have studies that have been done in the UK and Australia that have demonstrated no statistically significant difference, but there were limitations in their studies in regard to compliance. So I don't know. I don't know the final answer. Is it something you're using in your practice right now? We still use some uh, Accelident devices primarily for Invisalign patients. In my practice, we have a number of projects ongoing at any one time. So that study concluded. It took five years. It was way beyond whatever I thought I would have involved in. And interestingly enough, I haven't had too much criticism from folks short of them saying that it could have been biased. There could have been bias. I can assure you that in my terms, there wasn't any bias. 
But the actual final answer to this, at least in my terms, is it did something. There was an increased rate of tooth movement. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to the patient? No one has been able to show on any mechanism that I know of to increase the rate of tooth movement that has decreased treatment time because it is so subjective. What is the finish in treatment? It's like people saying, well, I got done six months earlier. How do I know that that's the same result as I would have accepted at six months? Or did you just simply stop at six months earlier? I don't know the answer to those things. And I don't think there's any way to compare them apples to apples. And that's why it's going to be difficult for anybody to ever really demonstrate that they've cut treatment time down in half. And there have been so many things that have been introduced to the profession and to the public, unfortunately, before they were introduced to the profession that said they cut treatment time in half. So that's problematic. I think there may be a role. But right now, there's so much skepticism. You know, blogs are powerful today. It seems to blot out the sun in many aspects. So I can only stand by what I found. And I've always told folks, I am not a promoter. I'm a reporter. I'm a critic. And so you're going to have to make your own decisions. Certainly, there are some excellent clinicians that have demonstrated what they believe to be incredible change and results. I can only show you what, what I did. Yeah, no, I appreciate that you have really you know, taken, obviously, this seriously, like you've done with a number of these questions, and really not just taken someone's word for it, but you know, did a thorough investigation. So I think that's really great. Let's finish by talking a little bit about your practice. You know, we've got a lot of younger doctors on the podcast that are maybe thinking about buying a practice or growing their practice. And I know that you purchased your practice and then you, you acquired another practice. Tell us a little bit about incorporating an existing practice into you know, your practice. How should an orthodontist think about that investment, trying to grow and, and the different opportunities that are available to them in that regard? Well, I, I grew up in a small town, farm town in Illinois. And uh, when I was looking for a place to practice, I'd been in St. Louis for a number of years going to school, and I was interested in smaller community, and I looked in about 15 different places. I wasn't really interested in being an associate, and I also wasn't interested in starting from scratch. So I looked at practices where there would be a transition, oftentimes a short one, and I kind of narrowed it down to two different locations. And of course, I think most importantly, you have to decide, is there a place where you'd like to live? Uh, you know, I hear so many young folks, well, I want to live in a big city. That's great. If that's the lifestyle you're looking for, then you should probably stick with that. But remember, today you can get to most any big city within a short period of time uh, if you need to do something in the big city. I've been happy to be in a smaller community. Most of your time is spent in your practice and with your family. So if there's something you're really missing in the big city for your family, then that's what you're going to need to do. So I'm not putting anybody down that's, that are in big city practices, but it's also much more competitive. I found a practice that was an older gentleman's practice. It was very small, very small building. As amazing as it sounds, he was still standing up. He even had two angle tables, which I did not realize what they were and got rid of them, which is one of the biggest regrets I have. They were actually true angle tables from the original designer. At any rate, I bought the practice. A couple of years later, I needed to expand. And another orthodontist had seen that the transition had gone very smoothly with the first gentleman. So I said, I don't really need this practice that you have, but I, I need a new location. So I said, yeah, let me, let me take over the patients as well. So then a third orthodontist had two offices and uh, was cutting back and uh, was in an, in an area where I had a satellite. We were both kind of in the same area. And so I said, sure, I'll, 
I'll uh, move out. I was in a dentist's office working a couple times a month, and I simply took over his actual satellite office standalone. And so that was the third practice that I took with a favorable transition with patients. Had two other people that basically closed their doors in our area, and they asked if I would finish their patients. There were not that many left, and I said, I'd be happy to do so. So I think, first of all, you got to treat not only the patients in the transition well, but also a goodwill is important. It's not just the commodity you're selling. It has to do with how you treat the previous folks that were ahead of you. And I've seen bad situations. So if you're interested in, in that type of thing, you got to think about not only yourself, but the person that you're purchasing the practice from to make everything smooth and don't ruffle feathers, et cetera. That was my uh, growth, initial growth of practice over a period of about, I guess it was about the first 10 years of practice was accumulation of other people's practices. And even though they had some different treatment philosophies and different appliances, it doesn't matter what the bracket system or wires are. You should be able to treat that patient. What it did for me was stimulate an interest in finding effective and efficient methods of finishing treatment, even though some patients may not have been as compliant anymore because they were their treatments had been extended perhaps a lot because of their own problems. So that really made me better uh, looking at my own results and then by accident beginning to give lectures and develop brackets and other inventions in ways of trying to make the practice better, that was all sort of by accident. It gave me another venue to be able to talk about orthodontics. I think that's a great opportunity. And I do think I had the same philosophy of I wanted to buy an existing practice and I bought a practice with three locations in existence. But, you know, I think when you have the opportunity to, you know, buy a competitor or a colleague or whatever you want to say, someone in your community and, and incorporate those, that's probably going to be a better return on your investment than, you know, a whole bunch of marketing or trying to grow in some other way. So I think that was a, a great strategy that you used. Well, you hit on something there very important, you know, and that your discussion of marketing, you can spend tons and tons of money to develop a practice. And obviously, when you're starting out, you may have to do some of that. But the key is still how do you treat the patients? If they're happy with you and the environment within your practice is a positive one, and your staff have a positive attitude, you are likely to be successful. And I, I go back to some advice that Charles Blair, who used to be part of the Blair McGill group, he was an orthodontist, he gave me long ago. I said, what, Chuck, what is the one thing you've seen from all of these practices you've visited, the ones that are the most successful? He said, those that are the most successful work their butts off. <laughs> That's really it. If you work hard and you have a positive demeanor and you treat your patients well, you're probably going to be successful. Another thing I think that you do that's maybe a little bit more unique, I've, I loved looking at the pictures of your practice online and some of the profiles that have been written about your office. You know, you've got this love of, of music and movies and sports, and your office just seems to be exploding with all of this memorabilia. It looks like a pretty fun atmosphere. Your, your personality is definitely coming through in your practice. What do people say when they first come into your office for the first time? They say, hey, wow, you've got a lot of stuff. I say, yeah, I'm going to be on Hoarders on Thursday night, so look for me. <laughs> uh, my office is nothing more than just a giant dorm room. And uh, ever since I was a little kid, I've had stuff posted all over my walls, whether it's sports memorabilia, movies, and rock music. I've been very fortunate to have had a lot of great experiences in life and meet a lot of interesting people and probably... Uh, Meeting the guys in the band Los Lobos is one of the best things that's ever happened. Uh, they've become such close friends. 
I get to go with them on tour if, if I want. I've been in the studio with them and they actually let me play on stage with them. So you just start to run into people, friends of friends, and it's pretty amazing. Probably the most amazing uh, experience was an orthodontist's daughter was George Lucas's uh, personal assistant. And I got to go visit Skywalker Ranch. And that is that was so amazing. And it's an experience that almost nobody ever got to do. This woman said the only other person she'd ever had come through there that George permitted to go through the archives of Star Wars stuff was Prince Andrew. So I nearly fell over when I heard that one when we got to go through it. So, yeah, it's, I've been pretty blessed in that way. Yeah, well, you know, one message that I've really tried to promote on the podcast is that every orthodontist should really embrace kind of who they are, what their passions are, share that with their patients. And I think like what you found that it helps you connect with people, it's fun, and it really also helps your practice to share your personality and put yourself out there. Well, some people may not, they may be turned off by all the stuff. I mean, there is a lot of stuff in there, Uh, but it (laughs) is me. And uh, so the guard is let down. Anything that's on those walls is me. You can see my interests and what I like, and they hear the music that I like. It is a it is a means of opening a conversation with folks, and that's really the start of the relationship is having a conversation, a genuine one, with your patient, asking about their interests, relating something to them about your own interests, and uh, you've got a friend. Yeah, and that helps a lot when you're trying to get trust from patients and their parents, so that you can help them with achieving what their goals are. It's not about pushing people through an office, not in our life. That's that's just not it. Well, Jay, this has been a blast. We're going to finish with our Elevate Express eight questions. I'm going to give you these uh, kind of rapid fire questions and we'll get some quick answers from you. How's that sound? Sounds great. Thank you. What's your go-to treatment for full step class twos? Full step class two, uh, it depends on if the patient's growing or not. Could be a molar distalization and or a fixed functional or a combination thereof using mini screws. Could be the extraction of upper first or second bicuspids or in the more extreme situations for an adult, it might involve a surgical correction. What's your standard retention protocol? I've just changed this in the last year. We finished treatment with a tooth positioner, a custom tooth positioner. So it's made so that the moment they have their braces off, patient gets a positioner, they're going to chew it 24 hours a day for a week, followed by another week at night while we're making retainers. We make them digitally. We uh, send you know a scan to have these positioners made. I've been doing that for a long, long time as a finishing appliance. Uh, actually came from an influence over 30 years ago from Jerry Clark, who was involved in the Benson, Koppel, and Clark group long ago. The retainers that we use for the upper is generally an in-house made clear retainer like an Essex we had a plastic that was fabricated for us from uh, Glenrow, and then the Glenrow purchased Essex. They no longer have it, but we can still find the plastic that we use. Then the lower uh, we used to do for the last three or four years, routine fixed retainers. I've tried a variety of methods. We tested a variety of methods in our office. And then a year ago, I was asked to try another spring retainer. And I've used spring retainers sporadically over the years. I've tried most companies' spring retainers or designs. He wrote some articles on them. And this new retainer from a little lab called QC Labs, it's called a Revolution Spring Retainer. It uses a flat spring TMA wire inner and outer bow with no plastic. I was skeptical. Okay, we'll try it. Let's follow a group of patients. We started with 10. I don't know how many we've done now. And uh, we used it for minor tooth movement as an alternative to any type of three to 
six-month treatment instead of like aligners for that. To me, it's much more predictable. It's adjustable. And so we decided, you know what? Why are we messing with fixed retainers? They come back broken. Patients are upset with them. Hygienists are upset with them. Let's go to something that not only is going to work as a retainer, but also as an insurance policy, because if the teeth start to move, the spring retainer can move them back. And since this thing is more active and adjustable than typical spring retainers, we've gone to this as a routine lower. So as soon as we're done with the positioner and finalizing what we like, we go to that as our lower. Who are your role models or your mentors? Well, my mentors were Lyle Johnston, Buzz Barrett, and, and Tony Gianelli for sure, but there are many others. But another role model would be Jim Boley, who's an orthodontist from Texas. He's amazing. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument, something that you wouldn't want to practice without? Probably a, a bird beak uh, wire bending plier that's uh, carbide inserted with a cutter in it. Oh, that's good. So it's got the cutter right in there. Right. Cool. I don't remember the, the number. I'd have to look it up. Jay, what's the best vacation you've ever taken? I would say the two most intriguing places I've visited would probably be Queenstown, New Zealand, or any place in New Zealand, and uh, also the Foz de Guasu in Brazil. Pretty amazing sites. What's one great book that you've read recently? Well, this would be for the folks getting involved in trying to improve their practice. Uh, it's a book called Traction. It's about the entrepreneurial operating system. And the past three years, we've used that to basically change the way we manage our practice. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. I don't think I've heard of that one. What bracket system are you currently using? My own, the butterfly system. Cool. And that's from American Orthodontics? Yes. And what is one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about in 2018? I suppose it's going to have to be airway. <laughs> yep. That's, it seems like, uh, it seems like we've got to figure out what's going on there. Right. For good or bad. I guess I'm going to need to know more. <laughs> Great. Well, Jay, it's been an absolute blast having you on the show. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to share this with our listeners. If people have some questions for you or they want to follow up, is there a way to reach you or get a hold of you? Sure. I would contact us through our, our uh, office email. That's info at KalamazooOrthodontics.com. And Kalamazoo is K-A-L-A-M-A-Z-O-O. Okay, great. And I know you're also in some of these online Facebook groups, so maybe you can be available in our Elevate Orthodontics group if people have some follow-up questions there. Sure, that'd be fine. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jay. I hope you have a great day. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Lance. I appreciate the opportunity. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our podcast. I want to thank Dr. Bowman for coming on the show and for taking a little bit of time out of his day to speak with us and to share his knowledge and experience with us. Also, a thanks to the sponsor of today's episode, Benson Koppel & Associates. Check them out at bensonkoppel.com. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 